This is a Sport Australia podcast production. Hello and welcome to our coaching and officiating podcast series. My name is Cam Trudell and I'm the project lead for coaching and officiating at Sport Australia. Over this series, we will look at what it takes to modernise Australia's coaching and officiating system. Each podcast, we will be joined by a special guest who will share experiences and practical tips on their topics. Today, we are lucky enough to be joined by Brad McGee, a former Australian professional racing cyclist who has competed at four Olympic Games as well as the coveted Tour de France. Bradley is an Olympic and Commonwealth champion. Across four Olympics, he has won one gold, one silver and three bronze medals. He is a five-time Commonwealth gold medalist and a member of the Sport Australia Hall of Fame. As a coach, he has been head coach at the New South Wales Institute of Sport from 2012 to 2020 and has also become the national men's road coach from 2013. Brad is passionate about enriching the Australian community through a strong international sporting presence. Brad, your resume and experience speaks for itself, and we thank you for joining us today. Cam, my pleasure. Uh, I feel quite honoured. I've listened to many of these and uh, really appreciate them. I really appreciate the support. Brad, you've had a career in cycling that sort of went to the heady heights, but it all started somewhere. And I'm really keen to understand where did it start? And do you remember? when you fell in love with the sport, and do you remember who helped you? Oh, definitely. Memory lane. This is wonderful. Um, feels so long ago, Cam. It really does. But essentially, it all started at um, the Parramatta Cycling Club um, way back in the early 80s, um, youngest of four boys. So my oldest was doing a little bit of triathlon, wanted to improve his cycling, and so that meant we went off to the local cycling club, Parramatta Holroyd Cycling Club at the time. And it only transpired years later that my grandfather, who we're very close to, and my uncle were big, big time members of this club. But we knew nothing, nothing of this until years later. But it sort of fitted in with what the feeling was when we went into this club. It just felt like family almost immediately. Just welcomed in. Everything was new. Um, before you knew it, you know, uh, the eldest brother and all the other brothers followed into the sport and so did my father. And my mum made a lot of sandwiches to fuel it all, really. Uh, but there was just a lovely club culture. Do you remember your first coach and what they used to do to, to one, either make you love the sport or question your love for the sport? Well, I need to put my old, my old man, John, um, down as my first coach, as he is. Um, and and I'll, I'll call it out. He might disagree with this one, but we're at Dubbo. We're at the, the, the Easter Carnival. Um, I went up there, didn't have a bike, but, you know, my brothers had all started this cycling thing. I was a soccer player, Cam, loved it. And before you know it, there's a, there's a competition for my age group. It must have been under 12s or under 10s or something. And uh, But didn't have a bike wasn't a problem because my brother, Rod, uh, was in the race just before. So the plan was that when he finished, um, I could jump straight on the bike. And But things t- sort of turned around a little bit and technically – I was a bit uh, challenged because it, it meant that I was on the first race. My dad would stand about 50 metres after the finish line. He'd catch me. We weren't allowed to do the one-lap wind-down in this 400-metre flat track. And, you know, first coach, John, my old man, he, he, his coaching was brilliant. He was like, great race, son. Get off. <laughs> and here I am going around, you know, sneakers and stubby shorts, and a hand-me-down Parramatta um, jersey with a number that basically wrapped around me twice. That was the start, and that was uh, Coach John. 
um, it wasn't too long um, before you know I was uh, coming through the the ropes and and um, it was time to get a real coach apparently and that was my dad making a decision because he couldn't keep up with me anymore out training um, and so coach um, John Beatty um, dear old friend good God love him rest in peace John but JB was just a classic club coach absolutely dedicated to the calls and he was there to help anyone and then with you know as he was there to help anyone in measured ways that were appropriate to that individual. So even as a 13, 14 year old, I was allowed to go out in some of these um, group rides, but there's no way I was allowed to have a training program. Um, you know, it was all measured and just, you know, just enough for you to keep getting better and no more. And so my first program with JB wasn't until I was about 15 years of age. And there'll probably be three days of, um, of, of written um, training sessions on the program. A couple of free days, do what you want type thing. I love those days, Cam, because I could go out and absolutely rip it to pieces. I wasn't, I didn't have to be so controlled. But again, JB and he's just measured appreciation of what each individual needed. It's what I like to think if we talk about high performance. He was a high performing coach. So he's servicing the motivation. So could he tell the difference between someone who is motivated to go on and be the greatest rider they want to be and then also those other ones that, yeah, sure, they wanted to compete, but were never, ever going to ride for Australia? Could he differentiate between the two and sort of challenge them at different levels? Absolutely. That, that was the key. So a lot of group riding, and it wasn't just JB, you're at a group, group ride as a young kid. Every one of your elders is, is like a coach, looking at your pedal style, you know, your position on the bike, you know, giving you little tips and feedback. But then JB could recognise and uh, reflecting back, you know, he could basically see the potential I had. He was training me towards bigger and better things where a lot of the guys and girls in the club, they were happy to be you know, club champions on the Saturday. I would have been too. I wasn't realising at the time, but he was training me for bigger things, you know, constantly layering in that extra pressure or, you know, on the pedals, not pressure, you know, to, to win, but just always, you know, I just feel like every session was almost achievable if you just focused and put in. Uh, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of lost lunches. Sorry, mum, some of those sandwiches went to waste, but I loved every minute of it. I was just challenged, suitably challenged, you know, right in that sweet spot. Really interesting. Do you remember when it changed? Do you remember when you emerged on the stage and you actually started to set your eyes from not realising that you're just being challenged and getting there to actually, I think I can be good at this sport. Do you remember that little transition in your own mind? Oh, absolutely. I was beyond my own mind. It was very obvious. Um, essentially, I went through puberty quite late, uh, between 15 and 16. So it was between a state and a national championships that I went from and also ran kid that tried really hard and threw up after every race to a kid that tried really hard, threw up after every race and was winning them um, at a national level. It just come on in a flurry. And so for me, I was just trying as hard as I could at whatever the challenge was in front of me. The only difference being now was, you know, with a bit of physicality that I was able to, to win bike races. And that was like, oh, wow, this thing really works, you know. And suddenly I wasn't thinking about being a soccer player anymore. That's really interesting. So you were coming in the middle of the pack, so to speak, but you've learned the micro skills. You've learned all the skills. So when maturation took over, all of a sudden, that's what elevated you to being an elite in the sport. Yeah, there was definitely no, I wasn't being lost and confused by any, you know, oh, you could win this, you could win that idea at a young age. It was focused on your pedal style and your breathing and your aerodynamics. You know, I, I come back from a race and I remember announcing my, my, my brothers and my old man, John, 
I was spinning, Dad, I was spinning. You know, I, I must have just learned that one the, the week before about spinning on the bike. And that was my big uh, big uh, sensation and, and win for that that club race. And and I guess that was the focus, you know, that John and, and the other members of the club were able to put on us was more around the, the technical skills and the acquisition and it was small wins all the way. The actual, you know, winning bike races was, it was never the focus. It was so far from the focus, you know. Sure, there was medals around and things like that. That would be nice. There was a bit of prize money, maybe some flowers for mum. But it was the least thing on my mind up until, you know, actually I started winning and that almost came by surprise. Incredible. And then you've got that next journey where it's not just winning the race, you're actually being the best in the world. You're sort of making that transition through that, which must be incremental. But now other factors, other pressures start coming in. How did you navigate that and, and who helped you through that sort of transition phase? Yeah, so I guess that's when, you know, as a 16, 17-year-old, um, it's kind of knocking on the door of national teams and future national teams. There's a, there's a lot more people in the picture there. You go from your your father, your brothers, your club coach JB, and a few other you know uh, regulars at the club. To you know, there was a junior nationals coach um, Pete. Um, there was a state coach um, Gary Sutton. There was a national coach Charlie Walsh knocking on the door and wanting to have a conversation. And then you know, there's a lot more influence. But for me, that JB was there with me the whole way through. And we, you know, I think he just installed in me just you know the keep it simple keep it specific don't overdo it was a big lesson kind of leave a little bit in the tank for for tomorrow um, and slow and steady um, was definitely the the approach and we were able to influence up with that i remember my father specifically talking with charlie walsh you know don't burn him out he doesn't need a lot you know um, and we we were quite we were still quite fresh to the sport we didn't know much about you know what was really needed but we knew what was needed for myself. And so I guess just maybe about a naivety, we were able to influence those you know, other coaches that you start to be introduced to. It's amazing, isn't it? The journey seems seamless. It seems accelerated through the fact that it wasn't actually winning and being the world champion. It was all actually driven by a love of the environment that the sport created for you. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I just loved going fast on my bike. And I was absolutely obsessed with the processes around that, you know. The winning bit was almost symptomatic, I guess. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, and I won. But the self-assessment even on a win, you know, was where could I have gone a little bit faster? You know, could have I had held my head down? Or if I didn't push the, the, the heart rate up quite so early, I wouldn't have vomited before the finish line. I would have got an extra couple of seconds. Yeah, things like that. Uh, really just, uh, you know, just fascinated by all those processes. Um, yeah, the winning yeah. became nice, but it was a value add, I guess. Um, and I think I was just fortunate, Cam, that I didn't have that physical presence at, at, at a really young age. The winning part and, and, the, and the complexities that winning brings you know, was, was, was kept from me for a number of years. So I've got those early years of development coupled with, you know, JB's approach. I was just very fortunate. It's a difficult thing to sidestep. I, I know I've had young kids come through sports and, and you know, how do you distance the, the win-lose effects um, and, and focus on those early processes and, you know, and, and, and celebrating those? It's a really tough, tough measure. Again, it takes a high-performing coach at that level. Someone who's completely committed and, and, and capable of coaching in, in measured, measured doses for you know, appropriate 
appropriate ages and skill levels. You've now done the full loop because now you're back coaching other people. How much of your coaching method is built from the experience of everything that happened to you and then you brought to life? And how much of it is yourself? How much of it do you bring out? And what are some of the philosophies you use in your coaching? Oh, definitely. If you talk about philosophies, you know, I've carried that, you know, don't try to do it all today. You know, training, if you like, what you're after is that adaptation. And adaptation just needs a measured dose of stimulus and recovery. You know, and you've got to think in your cycles, you know, you know, your, your micro to your macro cycles. So just enough to get that adaptation is what you're after. And that takes that takes some practice. Um, but it's something I've really grown uh, and, and formed into my coaching philosophy now. And and I'm, I'm, I'm early days in that coach development space now, and I'm intrigued by how many of our amazing coaches take on this as well. It's definitely um, present. And we talk about success, but we talk about sustained success. And this is where it's heavily linked. You know, going from a high performer to a, like a recidivist high performer, you know, that's what we're after, you know. You know we're, we're trying to achieve mastery here. That's not just from a pop-up flash in the pan result. That's from years, if not a decade, of, of continued um, success at the top end. So that measured dose is something I've really um, grown since, you know, working with JB all the, all the way back in the early 80s. And I think some of the great coaches um, I've, I've been exposed to over the years just had that in, in, in you know, in, in your Gary Sutton's or your, your Mac and McKenzie's. Um, they, they knew that that was super crucial. And you're not really holding the athlete back. You're just enabling the athlete to have an autonomous um, element into how much they actually do. So it's not I've got to, it's like, oh, I get to. It's a change in mindset but have a completely different result in the adaptation space. I really like that. That intrinsic motivation to be there is that I'm doing it because I want to be here rather than it's a Tuesday and I have to go. You're right, it's a nuance, but it's a big one. Absolutely. It's you know, just leaving that little bit out for the athlete to, you know, to, to springboard off, I like to think of it. And they take that leap of faith in, you know, knowing that there's support around. And then they'll be more than willing to push down on that springboard, which is the platform that you've built as the coach, and they'll jump into the darkness, knowing that you're there to catch them on the other end. I look back to what would that look like in my days as an athlete. As a 21-year-old under the Charlie Walsh regime, it was an 11-month program given to you in a folder about that thick. At every breakfast, lunch and dinner and training session for the next 11 months held out. So I took that on board and said, yep, but me being the egotistical little kid that I was, I was like, I'll do all that and I'll do mine as well. So I put a few extra sessions in there and took on the Australian hour record as it was and things like that. I was nuts. But that was how much I believed in that need that I needed to have that I needed to have my own imprint on what I was doing. To have your ownership to what you're doing and then see the value and I guess allow your athlete to make some mistakes to learn from, to understand where the guidance comes from. How important do you think that is? Well, what does it look like today? And, you know, I've, I've worked through the, you know, the professional ranks there with, with guys, um, you know, like your, your Richie Ports and your, your Michael Matthews and, you know, your Alberto Contadores. And, and in recent years before, you know, what I'm doing now with the Australian women's team, with your Amanda Spratz and Bobby Hosking, what it looks like today is it's, it's, it's these athletes having their own confidence, their own circle of trust, their own support network, no matter what team or structure they're with. And I think these are key elements to enabling that, you know, the athlete feeling that they've got that autonomy in, 
in in you know really um, dictating their their career and their and their and their uh, performances. So it's, it's, I think once you get up into the big game, it, it grows beyond just you. You need that that close circle of of trusting supporters around you, and that could be could be anyone. You know, it could be more technical support side of things. It could be just emotional. Um, you know, there's many different shapes that that takes, but it's it's part of that. That, that, that autonomy that we need to bring in and enable in our athletes. And, and I've seen it time and time again in our top performance and how important that is. Yeah, those interpersonal relationships become key. Sometimes an athlete, or I mean, even at the club level, doesn't want to tell the coach something, but might tell the yeah, strapper yeah. something. I believe our coaches need their own, you know, um, small, you know I, I call it small because I think beyond two or three is probably starting to get a little bit, um, to unravel a little bit. But having you know, a, your own team of confidants, you know, whether it's a critical friend, mentor, coach, whatever you want to call it, having your people uh, that you know that you can rely on, no matter what organisation or jersey or colour you, you, you're sporting. Do you feel that's important at all levels of coaching, knowing that they have other pressures, they've got work, they've got other things? Do you see that as being a key component to coaching at all levels? Well, what it relates to, I think, if we look, think back to JB. Um, you know, he was more than happy to hand over, if you like, his star athlete to, to Gary Sutton or, or, or Peter Day, uh, knowing that, you know, his, his impacts, his, his time was done. Um, you know, he's forever in my heart. I'm forever thankful to him and his family. But, you know, the actual coaching space uh, was probably only about two years that I actually worked intently with JB. And then it was time to hand over and transition. And that at the time, reflecting back, was, was an amazing feat. You know, it was at a time where coaches held on to their athletes, coaches held on to their knowledge. You know, what we now recognise, you know, sharing knowledge is, is more powerful than holding knowledge. You know, able to transition athletes and being a, a, an active participant, you know, albeit at a lessening um, uh, intensity, I guess, as we transition our athletes through. We know that's important. You look at what our swimming team's just done in Tokyo and, and getting that transition piece right was absolutely key in performance. But JB back in the eighties, you know, he, he he had that. I don't know where it come from, but he had that, and that was imagine if he tried to hold on to to his young charge for an extra year or two, and I and I faltered, didn't make that state team, didn't make that national team. Maybe you know uh, the soccer pathway might have had to be put back on the agenda. Cam, I'm not sure. Wouldn't have lasted. I've got both both legs, mate. What's going nowhere? <laughs> it's incredible because I think those communities of practice. At, at all levels, and you, you're right, the critical friend, the person, the mentor, the one to speak about other aspects of your life, but what's going right in this session? Because the external view to what's happening when you're, again, the old saying, you're too close to the woods to see the trees sometimes, to hear the conversation, what did I say then? What was the action? What was the reaction? And to have those people to provide that insight, I mean, that's key to learning and growing. And the beauty is, in our Australian sports system, we've got so many opportunities, of experience opportunities, to, to reflect through and grow from. You know, I don't believe we have to create too many more ex learning experiences. Reflect through them with your trusted, um, you know, team, personal team, and, and that's the growth and development or a big part of it. Um, it's, you know, and we can even we go back in time and reflect through past experiences. But you've got to build up those trusting relationships for that to be effective. Look, Brad, we've got some incredible insight today and, and agree 100% that it sounds like your journey from the first time you've got on the bike 
to all the heady heights to now re-engaging back in the sport, you can still hear it. The, the passion for your sport through that experience that you live through is clear. It's evident that this has impacted heavily on your life. Thanks so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you for joining me today. If you'd like to find out more about coaching and officiating or have any feedback or questions, please email us at workforce at My name is Cam Trudell and I look forward to you joining me for the next podcast in the Coaching and Officiating series.